millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show. The free speech bill has been in the Lords. We'll figure out what's been going on. The NUS president has been sacked. We'll consider the implications. Uh, There's a fascinating new report out on estranged students. And there's a new set of questions for the NSS. But whatever happened to community? It's all coming up. Scotland have always done better than England in this regard. It's always They've always been ahead of the game as well. So I'm not surprised to see this come out of it. I do think that there is a lot more that still needs to be done on this. And I do agree with you that maybe there needs to be further recommendations or at least more research done into this. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host Jim Dickinson and here to sit for hours on end watching parliamentarians talk about the Russell Group in their day. As usual, three fantastic guests. Uh, In North London, Jess Lister is Senior Policy Manager at Public First. Jess, your highlight of the week, please. Hello. So, yes, despite my deep personal loathing for travelling through Euston Station, I had a really lovely evening yesterday in Birmingham at the launch of the new partnership between Warwick and University College Birmingham. Uh, If you do get a chance to ever go to the Birmingham College of Food, dinner was excellent. Which was worse, Euston or New Street? Oh, uh, it was raining at New Street, so New Street just about edges it. (laughs) The two circles of hell. And in Oxford, Mike Ratcliffe is an academic registrar and sector historian. Mike, your highlight of the week, please. So my highlight was we went to visit our eldest child who is doing a study abroad in Spain, uh, which was fantastic. So her first year was affected by covid Um, So she's actually living the hall's life, having a really great time amongst lots of international students from places all over the world. Um, And um, it was just lovely. Sounds fantastic. And emerging from a tunnel somewhere, Sunday Blake is Associate Editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. Highlight of the week was the moment uh, my tube (laughs) train decided to start moving again, I think. Um, Also coming back to work after 10 days of annual leave, I was really excited and ready to come back and dive straight back into policy and analysis. 10 long days of hurt, never stopped us dreaming. So yes, we start this week with the free speech bill. Uh, We've hit committee stage in the Lords. Uh, Mike, what's been going on? So this is the the week where the the Lords are looking at the detail of what goes on. And uh, you're reminded of that Bismarck thing about if you like laws and sausages, you don't want to find out how they're done. Uh, because because we're really into the nitty gritty of um, them going through line by line um, what should be in the law. So we started the week with with nice statements from interested parties. There was a, a big splash from uh, the sector saying what it wanted to do with freedom of speech. And then we got into the detail. And I think that's where we start to get to uh, a real conundrum about the bill, because is it going to be about the detail? Is it going to be about lots and lots of the detail of what should happen? Or is it about the philosophy? And as they get into the detail, you start to get these really kind of odd moments where all of a sudden the House of Lords is talking about room booking policy in student unions. And so you suddenly leap from this kind of concept of what would happen if um, 
uh, a society wanted, you know, if the atheist society wants to book the room next door to the chaplaincy, could the university stop them or could they move them around? So you get into all of this kind of really nitty gritty stuff. So um, Lord Mann, uh, who has been uh, very nobly you know, going around uh, talking about the, the challenges with anti-Semitism, he put together a, an amendment. It was all on one page and it was just to take out the word any from uh, a line of the bill. So you've got all of this really nitty-gritty stuff that they're trying to work through. I'm going to give, if I may, Emerald, a couple of examples of where the issue of duty of care comes into its own. There is a, uh, a very famous filmmaker, um, political activist as well, called Mr Kenneth Loach, um, who was invited to speak at his college, St Peter's College, Oxford. The, a number of the Jewish students in St. Peter's College, Oxford, were very unhappy at Mr. Loach's previous uh, commentary in relation to uh, the Jewish community. That was their perception. And using traditional student language, they suggested he wasn't welcome in their college. So you're also then testing whether or not the bill should work. So they're, they're very clear that they're not doing a, a second reading, which is the policy stuff, but they keep sneaking in this kind of thought, why are we doing this? Is it going to work? Stuff as they go through as well. So we've had debates about what is it to be an academic? We've had what would it look like, whether you were promoted or not promoted? We've had debates about whether you could stop bad science happening. Um, there was a lovely moment where they all started talking about tenure, as if that wasn't got rid of in 1988. Um, so you've got you've got this really kind of complex thing. There's a slight tendency in the House of Lords for it to be about academics in terms of the discussion. And there's a slight tendency for it to be about two universities, um, uh, which is a bit of an issue. Uh, and so that kind of sense of how is this going to work across hundreds of providers in, in, in England? And then some some particular uh, issues that got picked up yesterday, which uh, uh, and Jim's put in a blog uh, spotted this morning. Uh, what 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 does it look like in terms of student unions? Because the, you know, the, we, we've had this strange thing that they're not going to include the Oxford um, JCRs and uh, and MCRs. Uh, they're not going to be included, but lots of student union activity will be. And there was a lovely moment where uh, Earl Howe. Uh, started to say, well, the rugby club won't have any problem. And then people said, well, actually, they will. You know, of course, the rugby club will have issues about dealing with speakers just as anyone else would. Just imagine the rugby club putting on a speaker about gender and politics. And so they go off. Uh, Lord Tradesman, who, who had been an academic, but also a leader of AUT, had counted, made a count of all the societies. He reckons there's 67,000 societies. Bit of an extrapolation. How, how are they going to get controlled? So you think something's not going to be controversial? Um, and they're not going to have issues when you come back. So uh, sometimes as a, uh, an academic registrar, you talk glibly about things that you know are safe. So you might say, oh, the chess club, they're going to be safe. They're not going to have any issues. Now, chess has erupted in all sorts of kind of, They could have controversial speakers now. They're going to go through this process. So it's going to be really quite complex. And, and how is that going to work in terms of a bit of legislation that is going to enable people to start suing fits of organisations that, that previously yes. they hadn't done. So Je really quite complex stuff for them to all to work through. Jess, you must have seen uh, a few of these over the years in terms of, um, you know, uh, watching parliamentarians talk about sectors and organisations <coughs> and services and people and activity that they're not hugely familiar with. But so, so you know, any specialist in a sector must get frustrated when they watch parliamentarians debate their sector. But the tendency... 
of in particular lords to reference their time at university is profoundly unhelpful isn't it <laughs> yeah it's it's always deeply frustrating as a kind of real sector wonk to then sort of throw back to the 1970s and talk about sort of you know port and cheese and the great chess club debate of 1988 in the middle common room of whatever college oxford um and I've always thought, you know, the Lords has the potential to be this great sort of sector asset. And then you sit and watch things like this, um, which are all, all quite painful. And uh, you, you realise that actually, potentially, they can sometimes do a little bit more harm than good. And I don't really know how to solve that problem, apart from, you know, putting some people who are under the age of 50 back into the Lords, maybe, that have been to university this century. But uh, I think we're a bit of a way off from that. Yes, and even then, it will be about which part of the sector, won't it? Because, you know, one of the things I keep saying, both on uh, social media and on the site, is there are 345 providers that are captured by this uh, piece of legislation. And, and I am pretty convinced that the Lords last night did not have in their head, you know, a, an FE college, a small theatre provider, um, NMI. Do you know what I mean? They're not thinking about anything other than a particular group of universities, let alone the whole of the university sector, let alone the whole of the higher education sector. And that on top of everything, you know, is why this is, you know, spoiler alert, it turns out writing legislation is really difficult. Um, but that's, that's why this is such a tricky thing to legislate for, right? Because you, you put all these provisions in that you're big older provider could probably cope with and deal with the sort of regulatory burden of but if you've got all these new and specialist providers that are suddenly you know out of nowhere getting sued because a student society they didn't know existed did or didn't invite someone to speak um you're just sort of creating this endless roundabout of 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 work uh and i think as we've seen you know from from mike's intro um the sort of will it won't it work debate uh you know what a, what a use of parliamentary time uh you know the government's probably got about 18 months left and uh it's not a kind of insignificant chunk of it now has been spent debating what does or doesn't count as a kind of um student union freedom of speech violation uh feel, feels wild sunday one of the things that um you know i think is interesting that I, I i'd kind of picked up overnight and, and and kind of run with a bit further than i have previously is um, if, for example, you pitch up at York University next year, University of York, and, and, and it, because there's a graduate students association, they'll have a code of practice on free speech. The students union will have a code of practice on free speech and the university will have a code of practice on free speech. It doesn't really make sense to have three codes of practice on free speech on one campus, does it? Or does it? Uh, okay. I mean, well, yes and no. Um, obviously, you want your student unions to be uh, independent bodies from the university. Um, but my experience from running these there was because I was a student union president oh coming up two years ago now <laughs> um, time flies um, but the um, the experience that I had would often be that we would have our code of practice the university would have theirs however if an event was happening where it would it would it would meet our code of practice but go against the universities the university would just like veto it anyway um and i kind of get that i kind of get that because it's like when it's sort of picked up by the media and it's picked up by the press it's never students guild student association student union have cancelled it's always university of so-and-so de-platforms you know the university is like who gets the attention so I, I do get it in terms of reputational management um but actually, I think that 
I remember working with you on this actually, Jim. Um, the the solution that we actually came up with was um, to have a joint policy right because all that happens is it creates like tension and upset and frustration and distrust between the two institute between the two organizations when your governance and compliance officer from you know the vc's corridor comes into the student union and says what's this about so and so coming to speak we're vetoing this um and then i think the other uh sort of on the other side well not the other side of it but the other point to this is when it comes to things like security costs, you know, you could have a really open liberal uh, freedom of speech policy uh, with the student union, but you have you have to work together with the university in terms of things like covering security because ultimately your tenants on their property, right? So it basically, I'm, I'm, it's a very long way of saying I agree with you. It doesn't really make much sense to have um, different policies. Um, the final point is if if someone uh, goes against if if there's a violation of one of these sort of policies, it doesn't make sense. Like say it's a particularly bad one, right? And I know that there's you know issues around things like Holocaust denial and whether that would be included or not, that sort of thing. But like if you if a student says something that goes against a behaviour policy, and they are say they're banned from an area of campus or, so, or some, there's some sort of disciplinary process. Well, okay, what parts of campus are they then allowed on during that suspension? And what happens if an area of campus that belongs to the university's sort of operations, they have to go through a student union part to get to it, but they're bound from the student union part. Do you see what I mean? Like there's not much, uh, it doesn't make sense in that, in that regard. Jess, in terms of the kind of public perception, or at least the quasi public perception of this, the only thing that really matters to the government surely is that, a, you know, the, the bill becomes an act surely at this point. I mean, the detail of this is what it is. It will be complicated, whatever, but the government just needs to tick it off the manifesto, doesn't it? So sort of and sort of not. So when we do poll University Freedom of Speech, um, here's, here's some stats I prepared earlier, uh, just in light of this question, um, you know, 63% of the public would agree that universities should uphold the principle of free speech. Uh, about 55% agree that people should be allowed to speak to students at university as long as their views are not illegal. Um, I think the thing for me is that I just don't see, you know, what we haven't polled and maybe we should do is, you know, given current events, uh, economic, global, energy bill crises, I, I don't know how many people would put this at the top of their priority list for government to do. Uh, and I think you're right that, you know, once this becomes an act, uh, it's it's all eyes back to the OFS because the implementation of this is, is you know, as we've seen through the kind of legislative debate, um, there's so many different pitfalls. Uh, you know, whoever your director of, of free speech is going to be has, has basically got, you know, 12 to 18 months to then pick apart all of that and actually make it work from a regulatory perspective. But, you know, it's going to completely disappear from the political agenda um, once it's once it's kind of passed and through and, and whoever takes on that job uh, has got to kind of then make it all work. So it's a good look. Mm. Mike, the other thing, of course, that happened this week that's kind of um, uh, at least tangentially related to uh, free speech is um, the news emerged that the National Union of Students has terminated the contract of Shaima Dalali, the NUS president, on uh, amid uh, allegations of anti-Semitism. Yes. So um, one of the one of the key complex complexities is is what do you do when someone is elected, um, but they have a series of roles 
that puts them into the employment law category and then how do you deal with that so people have been um student union officers are well aware of the excitement of people no confidence in each other and all of that kind of backwards and forwards but but here is a a, a tangible issue that needs to be got to the heart of what's complex of course is that we've had relatively little information about what has actually been found in this process such that they've taken this decision so there's stuff about this was a um, a, an historic um, social media post or posts uh, which were then taken for but we don't know that that's the extent of it Um, what does that look like in terms of someone's ability to do an ongoing job so there's the employment side of that does that stop you being able to do that and how does that interact with being an elected officer Um, although elected obviously in this kind of yeah, a semi-parliamentary way that you get elected from a, a bunch of other people who have been elected. So, so really quite complex is what that looks like. Uh, quite a lot of excitement about that uh, in terms of people's views, uh, and I think there's got to be some kind of extra stage where someone explains what's going on. Now, obviously, there will be an appeal, there'll be some kind of uh, process to work through that. But at the moment, that doesn't look particularly good. But clearly, NUS has been given a very clear stance that it's got to deal with issues of anti-Semitism inside that bit of the student movement. Uh, and here it is trying to deal with with a particular case. And so how that actually pans out is going to be really quite complex for them to get a clear picture. We've got to make it clear that uh, people can feel safe inside the National Union of Students. Uh, they can't expect to have racism when they go there. But that really gets into one of those mo- most complex areas of what does that look like? What is the definition of, of uh, anti-Semitism? How does that apply to people? And then how does that apply to something that someone may have said in the past when they may not say it here in the present? Jess, there may be obviously more to learn from this case once we know more, if at some point we know, you know, we learn more. But, but more generally, it strikes me that over the past 10 years or so, not least in Parliament, but also in other settings, there's often, you know, a kind of call for public accountability. You know, the court of... Public opinion, particularly on social media, will call for someone to go, will reach judgments about people's conduct and call for them to go. But then other people will be saying, no, no, you need confidentiality and due process. And those two things do not sit well together, do they? Because, <laughs> um, you know, you have to have trust in the due process. And, and it seems to me that one of the reasons why people are doing lots of kind of social media condemnation is that people don't have trust in those due processes. Yeah, I think this this case is obviously been really difficult um on on lots of levels um you do see in politics and in parliament sometimes you know people will kind of get called up for a tweet they've made in their past and and it's kind of their their reaction to that you know can then be quite you know lead lead in all sorts of different directions and obviously in this case it's it's um i'm sure it's not the only thing uh, i haven't read the judgment but you know it has led to um the dismissal uh, of the NUS president. Um, I do worry a little bit, you know, the, the NUS has always played a kind of policy role as, as kind of a voice of, of student opinion. And I think that what this this has done, you know, it's particularly at a time when, you know, lots of worries about cost of living, lots of worries about sort of life on campus post-COVID, um, you know, who who fills the void of that voice, um, I think will will be a really important question uh, that's going to need to be answered you know, quite quickly because uh, kind of once you're off those, you know, public opinion stakeholder lists, you know, the people that get asked about what's going on in the sector to inform policy, 
um, you know, if we lose a student voice from that, it's, it's, it's going to be really challenging. I will say this is actually an area that I do get quite sort of almost anxious about. Like I have very, very strong opinions on lots of things, but uh, issues around uh, anti-Semitism um, and then it's sort of, you know, how it works within the student movement with and then accusations of Islamophobia or using accusations of anti you know, it, it's something that is just so sort of like overwhelming. And, and I think it's really difficult to make judgments on this. I think that this is one of but but that's not an excuse not to. And I think one of the reasons that the NUS has got itself into this situation is that it's looked at this issue and it's been so sort of like nervous about it that it sort of like had inaction for, you know, sort of the last decade, really. And and anti-Semitism is, is a really, um, uh, when I got trained on it, I like to think that I'm quite clued up on, on a lot of issues. But when I had my training in anti-Semitism, I was like, Wow, this is everywhere, and a lot of us don't even realise. So I do, I do, I am quite nervous about comments on this. I'd, but however, I will say this, and I say it with caution. But just because we are talking about this in relation to the freedom of speech bill, one of the things that has happened rapidly in the last two years is that lots and lots of uh, university operations teaching you know, seminars have gone online. Not only have they gone online, they've gone into lecture capture and, you know, digital immortality, basically. And one of the, you know, I'm I'm not saying that the comments that she made 10 years ago are in any way excusable at all. But I am saying that comments I made 10 years ago are also inexcusable. And I, w- I would like the opportunity to be able to apologise for things that I've changed my mind on. Now, when well what i'm saying is in conjunction with freedom of speech on campuses the reason that i am an ardent you know an ad, a really sort of like advocate of freedom of speech is because i believe in people's right to raise things that they're thinking about and saying in lectures in seminars in a way that they could you know so a key discussion a key important best you know, the best sanitizer is sunlight, right? You you bring these to the forefront, you talk about them. And the, the example that I always give is that when I first arrived at university, I did not understand like this, I, this thing around transgender issues. I did not understand, you know, what, you know, I'm a woman and I was born a woman and that's how you identify, you know, that sort of thing. And I remember there being a seminar where I was allowed to talk about this and people would then say, well, actually, have you looked at this theory and have you read this, this paper? And through the course of that sort of two and a half hour seminar, because it's a long, <laughs> long one, I did change my mind a lot. And now I sort of, almost sit at the other end of the spectrum. But had that seminar been recorded and uploaded somewhere where everyone can access it and download it and revisit in 10 years' time, people might have a different opinion of what I think around that issue, right? And this is one of the, this is one of the things that I worry about is that we are constantly saying freedom of speech, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. Now, if we, if we are promoting that in the correct way for the reasons that we should be, which is that we are in pursuit of truth and knowledge, then we have to accept that people are going to be saying things that they then would like later want to retract. Because if everyone has suddenly got an okay and accept opinion 
like ready-made when they arrive on campus then what's the point of coming to university at all right now, now but, 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 but hold on let, let, let me just ask mike right so mike that's very interesting isn't it because the truth about lots of student disciplinary cases is they involve someone who perhaps 20 years ago or 30 years ago would have had a clip around the ear and told to kind of change their ways now we're much less forgiving aren't we of particular types of transgressions in terms of behavior now what some people would say that makes it less of an educational environment other people would say well hold on for the people that that behavior affected that makes it more of an educational environment for them you know you know if you've got someone who engages in low-level sexual harassment in the past we wouldn't have tackled it the student might have learned through a clip on the ear these days we would tackle it the student doesn't learn because we might exclude them from the university. Where on earth do you draw the line on how educational the environment is supposed to be? But I'd like to say, in my long experience of the sector, it's a long time since we've been clipping students around the ear. But, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> you know what I mean. But I, yeah, I do have some examples of when corporal punishment was in universities, but, but let's move off that quickly. So um, I think there's a very interesting thing about no tolerance statements. So we would want to say we won't tolerate this. But what does that mean in terms of actually looking at the behavior that you discover and say, well, look, we're not going to tolerate that. So what are we going to do about that? Um, and on the one hand, you've got people who say, well, putting people in classes so that they learn about um, consent or they learn about respect for other people. You can find people who are objecting to that because that's 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 anti-freedom of speech because the, you know there's an issue with that. Um, and on the other hand, you've got people who say, well, look, if if you commit a racist act, on a university campus, we will have to consider whether you can stay on this campus and, and take it to that level and say, look, you know, we, we, ha we owe it to everybody on this um, campus to make sure that they're not going to be subjected to this. So part of the contract of signing up is to say, you're not going to be racist. Therefore, if you go around being racist, you're probably going to have to have some consideration as to whether you can stay or not. Now that becomes, but but, but but that judgment is difficult enough, isn't it? Without someone also now being able to say, "Well, it was my free speech." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, yeah. Like, that ramps it up, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And and when you get to you know the, the the people who want to contest what we've badged as decolonisation, then you're into all sorts of stuff. So you know, is it is it the case that you can say the British Empire is a good thing or a bad thing? And that becomes an issue in and of itself. And then you, you know, if it's an academic, it becomes academic freedom, if it becomes freedom of speech. So, so when you're looking at those kinds of things, it becomes really quite hard. And when you've got, if we come back to anti-Semitism, in the definition, there are things that people contest about the definition. And then they contest things that then become quite complex in terms of saying, well, look, you, you, you can't say that on our campus and therefore the implication of you having said that on our campus yeah. is this. All fascinating stuff. Uh, plenty of coverage on this uh, and related matters on the site. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name's Dr Becca Bland and I am blogging on Wonky this week around research that's been published and commissioned by Scottish Government around estranged young people and their experiences at university. Um, for those of you that know me, you'll know that I've been talking about estranged young people in higher education for nearly 10 years now in my job here at Standalone. 
Um, and this piece of research published by Scottish Government um, presents a landmark moment for us. Um, so we are ultimately really pleased that government has paid attention, although very unhappy with what the findings show, of course. Um, for those of you that have taken the time to sit down and read the 85-page report, it gives a very bleak picture of what students are going through at university if they don't have family support around them. And is a real um, yeah, I would say a touch paper for saying that these students really need po policy representation across the UK um, from government sources and also off-government offices such as the Office for Students. Um, and that's a very important aspect of this work is that um, looking at institutional homelessness that some students still are really struggling to find a home and really struggling to keep a home whilst they're students and that constant threat of homelessness lingers throughout their studies. That's something that we really want government to act upon and really want government to make student accommodation affordable and calling the report calls for institutions to think about the affordability of their accommodation which is something that we really want yeah, gov both governments and institutions to focus on from now on um, because we don't want any student to not be able to afford their education and we also don't want any student to feel hurt they're going to be homeless. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, next up this week, we have some new NSS questions, Sunday. The OFS has actually rebuffed the majority of feedback <laughs> that it gathered on changes to the National Student Survey. Uh, around 90% of respondents asked to retain the summative question. Uh, overall, I am satisfied with the quality of the course, but this is actually going to be removed, uh, despite them saying that they wanted to retain it. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Um it's going to be removed, oh, sorry, it's going to be retained for students in England only. Um, and this actually makes it harder to compare uh, institutions across the UK nations. Um, so it's difficult to sort of see how that's going to relate to overall satisfaction. Um, a question on mental health provision, or rather communication, uh, and what is on offer will be added. 
um, and one on freedom of expression, which obviously links into what we were just uh, talking about. On the site, Jim, you were actually horrified uh, that the question on whether respondents feel part of a community of staff and students have had the right opportunities to work with other students. Uh, you you were quite upset that these are actually up for the chop. Um, the HE sector has expressed strong dissatisfaction at how their consultation responses had uh, been counted for. And Charlotte Snellen, who uh, is UK policy ma- manager, actually wrote for us uh, last week and said that the OFS cannot continue to see consultations as a token opportunity for the sector to air their views. Right, exactly. Um, and this this is quite a, an important point because actually the uh, burden of these sort of complex consultations uh, is quite high, especially when people are taking their time to sort of, you know, fill them out and send them back. And it also risks, uh, well, basically, sector-wide expertise being ignored. So, uh, yes. not great, really. Well, Mike, on this question, right, I guess, you know, if, you, if you're a big university and you're taking a consultation like this seriously, because so many people might make use of NSS data, you do want to kind of disturb everybody's summer, don't you, to make sure they get a chance to feed into your response. But when you've disturbed everyone's summer to feed into your response, you then read that not a, not a word of it is going to be taken into account. Makes it really hard to get people to take part in this sort of stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, and and and, and I think the, the the key thing that's going to be at the heart of people's mind is that that this was this is something that is about yes, there's the the, the quality assurance stuff that the OFS is is concerned about, but we brought the NSS in to provide student information, and there is a thing about the summer. Uh, and that is that all of the stuff we would do for student engagement in universities becomes much harder. So all of the things, you, you want to go and talk to people about how they used it. You'd want to use all that information. You've got a wide range of people, all of whom are busy doing other things. Some are, you know, yes, yes, there's a bunch of people who use it to take their annual leave, but another bunch of people are quite desperately doing other things to get ready for the new academic year. And that's not a great time to, to go splashing around with this kind of thing. And then, so, so two things. Firstly, I mean, UUK is kind of unprecedented. It's interesting that you know Vivian Stern has taken this chance to say, look, don't do this quite publicly, uh, in a way that you know, 30 years ago, people were complaining the CVCP didn't complain about the stuff, but but you know they've taken a quite a strong stance on this. But also, the stuff we got back from the OFS was not brilliant in terms of addressing what we assume are or everyone's concerns. So just on the summative question. Because I think it, it's a kind of lodestone for, for what else goes on. We get a couple of paragraphs from the OFS dismissing the fact that we're going to have the summative question, and, and including arguments that it's because it might be influenced by things outside the academic experience. Well, yes, that, that, it's, it's, yeah, that's great. That, that's a chance for students to say, look, the learning and teaching might be fine, the library might be fine. I, you know, I don't have a problem with the timetable uh, as it's organised, but I'm not that happy. So, so why not have that? And, and, and internally. You use that to correlate against the other things. So you can use that to say, well, look, yes, this might be an issue, but actually the students are overall okay. And therefore, we're going to think about what happens in the other 22 questions because you have to think about all of the different things that work. So so the, the last summative question did have a purpose um, and will continue to have a purpose in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, but won't have a purpose in England because we, we will lose that ability to to use that as a way of saying, well, you know, how, how are students really seeing that? Are they really miserable about that? But quite happy with the library, makes the library happy. But otherwise, it just becomes, 
a zero sum game, measuring that against something. So I, th I think it's quite a concern, and I think the way that the consultation rebuttal um, rather than a response um, doesn't feel it's like a get, we've it had the engagement. Like, it was like reading the DFE rebuttal blog, wasn't it? The education blog that sometimes uh, is, and, on, and, is and, on that website. And other consultation responses might have data. Yes. Yeah. So that we get this kind of what? what how was it phrased? Um, Ten percent of people supported this. Yeah, about ten percent, but we don't have the numbers. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the OFS normally and which, and which people stuff. on how many other people's behalf and so on. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so were yeah. the were were the ten percent? You know, this type of university or this type of provider, or you know, who, who was it that said and, that and so on? Yeah, yeah. Jess, you must you must look at across a, a, a number of you know kind of public sector consultations, both from government departments and from arms length bodies, regulators, and so on. Is this common? Does this happen a lot? Because I think I think the higher education sector. In, in until OFS came along, certainly in England and to some extent still around the rest of the UK, he's, he's kind of aghast at the idea of these sham consultations. But I get a sense that they're pretty common in the rest of the world. You're making me sound like, you know, so much fun at parties. Uh, <laughs> just sat here reading public sector consultation responses. Um, I think the risk with the OFS is it's, it's, it's sort of becoming a bit of a, you know, running joke, you know, for consultation response you know lands in bristol parkway and nobody reads it you know was it all just a big waste of time uh and you know someone who used to write a lot of these these as well um you know there's been eight consultations in 2020 alone you know i don't know how big the ofs is but someone's then got to read and respond to them so it's, it's you know becoming not unsurprising that as, as mike said you know the, the quality of the response back is is you know, also being impacted by the number of consultations the OFS is, is doing to itself. Um, and I don't think you see that in in many other sectors. You know, I, th I think the, the volume and then the subsequent impact on quality uh, is becoming a bit of an issue um, in higher education. And I do sort of wonder, you know, we've got a new team in, at the DfE. I'm sure at some point they will say something about, you know, bonfires of regulation. Uh, you know, keeping these lists of information and data requests and just, just the very practical, you know, here's all the people we had to pull together to write this 30-page response. Um, then we had to do it 19 times in the course of six months. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's there's some members of the team that would be a bit aghast at that. Uh, is even happening. Uh, yeah, so, so get, get right in those lists. Sunday, just before we move off this, I, I want to read you a, I want to read you a sentence. Okay. Okay. And yeah. You have a level of expertise in this area because you've just done a whole bunch of belonging research with you know, Pearson. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, and I quote, We did, however, find that some respondents to the consultation were interpreting the current NSS question on belonging to a learning community to be about their wider sense of community. Oh, good Lord. What's have that mercy mean? on my soul. I, okay. As if there's some difference between your wider sense of community and your, le your, your, is... and your learning community. I mean, this doesn't make sense, does it, oh, in terms of no. your research? Look, it's, look, I'm tired. It's 2022. Like, has that, I mean, surely someone at the OFS, I'm not, I'm, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but that was a good piece of research. Like, <laughs> surely someone at the OFS has cast a cursory eye over it by now. Um, but yeah, no, the idea that, uh, the idea that your course is completely siloed away from the rest of your university experience is it that that is not like we are so far beyond that now. Um, it, yeah, the, if people were interpreting 
that question in that way, then they were interpreting it right, basically. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think we'll leave it at that. Good. Now, finally this week, uh, there's a new report out on estranged students. Jess, what did we learn? So, yeah, we're going up to Scotland, uh, where the Scottish government has published new research into the experience of estranged students in FE and in HE. Uh, it looked really in-depth at, you know, the reasons for that estrangement, uh, challenges around declaration and evidence in and kind of subsequent impact uh, for the estranged student on things like student finances, uh, on accommodation, on their sort of ability to engage in you know the academic study and in the kind of social community side of university as well. Um, I think it's a really powerful report. Uh, I know there's always a lot to read, but I'd sort of recommend everyone kind of dipping into this there's some you know really good use of kind of quotes and case studies that you know I feel like estranged students is is one of those terms that gets used a lot and they kind of get get grouped as this kind of you know at-risk group but there's there's not a huge amount of deep understanding about what it actually means to you know be a 17 year old who, who becomes estranged from their parents and you know university and FE and HE often provides them a sort of route out from that and a sort of escape and a, and a chance for themselves uh so yeah definitely recommend looking at that um and the report findings you know aren't that surprising but they are really important uh estranged students faced uh, you know, massive challenges around their financing um some things that we all take for granted a bit you know not being able to get a guarantor for a flat or accommodation so more often than not ending up in quite insecure accommodation or in financial difficulty uh, and the report called for greater institutional awareness of the experiences of estranged students, um, better financial and mental health support. And what I thought was really important right at the end, um, you know, better processes and a named contact. It kind of highlighted that often these students were able to disclose their estranged status to a tutor that they knew quite well, but it was often a course tutor or a seminar leader who then couldn't quite follow up with the right support or, you know, knew where the right support was to signpost. So having someone that, you know, estranged students across the institution know of and know that they can go to and talk about and get the support that they need, um, that was really important. Yeah. Someday, one of, the, one of the things that jumped out for me was, I obviously, you know, turn up to lots of events and, and read lots of reports where there's a sense of what I would call, won't somebody think of the so-and-so culture, right? So you read something and then someone say, well, yeah, but what about commuter students? Or what? And you just go round and round in circles, never really properly getting your head into the world of a particular group of students. And one of the things that you know, I, I found reading this was I was re I was in there. I was immersed in in, in another group, in, you know, this group of students' world that I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about over the past few months, and that was quite powerful. I still don't really know whether the recommendations cut it in terms of doing the right thing to respond to what I've learned in the immersion, though, sure. and and that's the tricky bit, isn't it? Uh, do you know what? I, first of all, I want to say that this this report is so well welcomed. Um, really important. I don't talk about my own background that much because I like to think that you know it's my sharp intellect and 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 political like insight that uh, that, get, that gets me gets gets me reads on the wonky website. But you know, as someone who who was estranged from my from my biological parents at university, this is something that I was just absolutely enamoured with. Um, I bless you. Um, I, uh, 
Scotland have always done better than England in this regard. It's always they've always been ahead of the game as well. So I'm not surprised to see this come out of it. I do think that there is a lot more that still needs to be done on this, and I do agree with you that maybe there needs to be further recommendations or at least more research done into this. I think one of the reasons that we don't necessarily talk about strange students that much is because it's so complex. You know, it's not just this case of, um, you know, you mentioned commuter students, and you can look at the very practical issues around commuter students. Um, and obviously, we actually looked at commuter students and how it impacts their sense of belonging and their academic outcomes and that sort of thing. But with estrangement, there are so many complex issues that it's not just about financial support. There's also... High like a bit like there's a high likelihood that these are relatively traumatized individuals as well. Issues that Jess spoke about, like needing a guarantor. Well, the way that people get around guarantor is by paying six months to a year's rent up front. And you know, students have disclosed the ways that they raise that money very quickly, and that links into other issues around students being used on county line drug trafficking, students being used in sex work. You know, it's never just the simple. I'm by, I am uh, estranged from my parents and therefore I don't have a guarantor. It becomes this sort of very complex issue that people with, uh, who find themselves in moments of crisis uh, f- find themselves in. I think that point on the moment of crisis is really important because obviously they are talking about um, you know, enhanced um, support, financial support for students. And obviously, one of the findings was that a lot of students only disclose at the moment of crisis. Uh, when I worked in a university, we had experience of this, you know, students turning up to the advice centre in the clothes that they're wearing and nothing else and having to rush to Primark and get them, you know, a new set of clothes. Um, but one of the things that is continually frustrati- frustrating, and this report does point out, is that the burden of evidence that places like student finance put upon per upon estranged students is far too high. Things like having to be estranged for over a year, for example, or only getting financial support or at least the uh, the, the c- condition for it is that you've been estranged for a long period of time. Now, in a past life, before I worked in higher education, I used to work for Women's Aid and we were always told that people stay in abusive situations because, that they, because they don't have a way out. And something that I think always gets overlooked in conversations around estranged students is the pre-estranged students. So yes, estranged students are very vulnerable, but there is a whole nother group of of students who want to be estranged who would be safer and happier and be doing better at university if they were out of whichever situation it is they find themselves in but they are not breaking that contact and they're not getting themselves out of that dangerous situation because the condition for support is so uh, the um the the ever the bar of evidence that they have to provide I haven't been in contact with my family for over a year is so high and bear in mind that's about a third of their university degree as well is so high that they won't uh, they won't make that initial step um Mike you know it isn't all about money but obviously you know at the moment it it, it might it might really be very important that we also think about the you know we mustn't set aside the money if people don't have the ability to access you know the 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 notional fanciful parental contribution yeah so this this can be seen as a as a technical thing about that student finance england transaction and and, and that's that's important if people are not having that money flowing to them uh, because the the family that they are becoming estranged from has decided that they're just not going to support them so so getting into that becomes the, the thing. And I think that's where there's an opportunity for universities to 
to step outside the all of the intersectionality we do and say, well, look, we need to think about this person as an individual. So as you, you wander around different institutions, I worked at a place that had a mature students officer who, who just didn't do mature students, but but he was a kind of social worker for students who found themselves in, and, and took a kind of holistic view and said, well, look, we can do all of these kind of things to sort you out. And he was close to the financial aid people and he was close to um, the people who were in accommodation and, and there were things they could do to make that. Now, that, that's hard to roll across a big institution and make that work. But I think coming back to thinking about people as individuals and saying, look, I can find a pathway through you. But that, that's got to be an identified central person. You can't turn up at your academic tutor and then expect them to do that kind of negotiation for you. So you, it, it's something a university needs to be able to do because that will enable people to stay. And that's that's good for that individual. That's great for that individual if we can make that really work for them. And of course, it, you know, it's, it's good for your B3 outcomes as well. But I think it's, it really makes a difference if you can take that individual view and make something work for that person. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Spotify, Acast, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you in where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Jess, Mike, Sunday, DK, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.